1: Sports is
2: drama, and the people behind the microphone are painting that drama. It makes your pleasure better, so that even if it's a bad game, that the broadcaster will keep you in the game. And if it's a great game, the broadcaster enhances that. So broadcasters can make a huge difference in your listening and viewing habits. I'm Jim Hankey, and this
3: week I'm chatting with Chicago radio legend George Offman a conversation in two parts about his new book and the conversations he's had with the elite in athletics, whether on the field or behind the desk. Let's get looped in, Chicago. If you're a lifelong listener to Chicago radio, you know George Offman well. A sports media veteran of nearly 50 years, he was one of the original reporters on The Score when they launched in 1992, and he's also been employed by WGN and WBBM during his career as well. A few years ago, George launched his own podcast as part of Last Word on Sports Media, where he's chatted with a who's who list of sports broadcasters, writers, coaches, and former athletes, many of which have had a Chicago tie, which leads us to his new book, named the same as the podcast, Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, Conversations with Chicago Sports Legends. It's available wherever you buy literature, and it's a treasure trove of poignant, hilarious and captivating interviews with Joe Madden, Ozzy Gian, Chris Chelios, and more. So I selected a few specific conversations on George's podcast to delve deeper into with him, and graciously George has allowed us to share that audio here. Waiting for you in this podcast feed is a second episode with George where we chat about his discussions with Blackhawks national anthem legend Wayne Mesmer, celebrated Cubs broadcaster Pat Hughes, and Chicago sportscaster Peggy Kaczynski but now check out this first part of our chat as we examine george's time with the acclaimed bob costas previous bears coach dave Wadstat, and now former chicago white sox broadcaster jason benetti aside from sports coverage george i'd like to start off just asking if you'd always had sort of the interview bug like me i remember I grew up in the you know early 80s. I was out in the backyard taping myself, introducing songs, that sort of thing. Were you always curious and, and kind of a talkative young person where you can look back and go, oh, yeah, this is how I
2: got into wanting to talk to people? When I was in kindergarten, growing up in Albany Park, the, the kindergarten teacher sent you know the grades and told my father and mother that I was a busybody. What's a busybody? It's somebody who talks a lot. We kind of knew then. Uh, we lived across the street from the Hibbert Elementary School, and there was a whole bunch of kids in the neighborhood. We'd get together and play you know, baseball in the summer on the campus, and I was Jack Brickhouse. I not only played, but I announced the game, and then after the game, I was the 10th inning show, and I would use a soda pop can, and I would interview the players, and that's kind of where it began. So, yes, I was kind of inquisitive and talkative and kind of knew 60 years ago that this is what I wanted to do for a living. That's amazing. And, and certainly not
3: everybody gets to do what they wanted to do, you know, for a dream job. So what has that been like when you look back at this, you know, including this book and your years in radio and your years in sports coverage? I mean, what's it been like to maybe connect with that inner child of your of yourself and know that, you know, you were able to take this as far as you could dream?
2: I'm lucky to do what I wanted to do. And there are a lot of people in the world who aren't. But in this industry, I'm not alone. There are a lot of people who did the same thing. Great example, Charlie Steiner, who's not in the book, uh, the longtime voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers and ESPN and the Jets, et cetera, et cetera. So as a six-year-old in Brooklyn, he's got a little tape recorder and he's recording himself doing the World Series the Brooklyn Dodgers are playing. It's in his living room. Fast forward to 2020 during COVID, when he is the broadcaster of the Dodgers and he's broadcasting the world series from his living room in Los Angeles. That is one of the most phenomenal stories I have ever heard. And it's really something because like I said, a lot of these people who are broadcasters today kind of did what I did. You know, they started as a child pretending and wanting to be what they want to be. I grew up in Milwaukee. So for
3: me, it's Bob Uecker. For me, it's Jim Paschke for the Milwaukee Bucks. So we get acquainted with, and I think you might agree, we get acquainted with these voices, right, especially on radio, like we can take TV out of it kind of, but especially on radio, because that voice is accompanying us on all the highs and lows that we are following with our team, right? They are, they are almost, they're guiding us along the way with all the statistics and all the interviews and stuff, but they're also the only other person with you in the car, at work, at home, as you're hearing this, right? They become quite influential that way
2: they're the voices of your lives you know and it doesn't even matter if it's let's say sports it could be news it could be a disc jockey that's what you grow up with and that but in our industry yes i mean when i was a kid i would flip the dial so that i can listen to harry Carey on kmox doing the cardinal games and then suddenly he's doing White Sox games, and then he's doing Cubs games. I loved doing that. I would turn on WCIU in Philadelphia and listen to the hockey game with Don Earl and Gene Hart. We did, we did that. We grew up with those voices. Who in this city, who is old enough to remember Jim Durham, could not say that he's, if not the best, one of the best broadcasters in history because he was one of the few who could paint a game on radio and make it sound like you were watching the game on radio? Was unbelievable. So, yes, that's what you grew up with. You just mentioned a couple of interesting people. Jim Paschke, I covered the Brewers uh, as a freelance from 1978 to 1983. So, I covered the World Series. I got to meet Jim Paschke. I, the people in Milwaukee were great. I love the city. So, you know, that's part of the history of a career. Well, yeah, and I want to get to Pat Hughes uh,
3: a little bit later. He also is a voice I grew up with uh, mm-hmm. when he w- was partnered with Euchre for many years. And he made an interesting point on your podcast talking about it's not just calling the game. It's painting it, as you said, your language. You can't just say, and the windup and the pitch. You have to say, like, oh, here's the next delivery. It's a 2-2 count. A pitch gets thrown to a batter how many times a game, and you have to make each one a little bit different than the other, which is a true skill.
2: It's drama sports is drama, and the people behind the microphone are painting that drama. I think it was Greg Gumbel, we had a little bit of a disagreement uh, during the, the interview. And of course, Greg grew up here in Chicago and was a television sportscaster here in 1973. And he said, you're not watching or listening to the game for the broadcaster, you are watching the game because you're watching the game. Same thing with listening to the game. However, a really good broadcaster enhances the game, that makes the difference. It makes your pleasure better. So that even if it's a bad game, that the broadcaster will keep you in the game. And if it's a great game, the broadcaster enhances that. Pat Foley enhanced the Blackhawks game for 40 plus years. Harry Carey enhanced the Cubs game and a White Sox game for all those years. So broadcasters can make a huge difference in your listening and viewing habits. Well, let's jump off then. This is a great segue
3: talking about a broadcaster that we've all been thinking about very recently, Jason Benetti, in the news, obviously, with his switch from the White Sox to the Tigers starting next season. Tell me your thoughts on him as a broadcaster. You just mentioned all the things that make a great broadcaster. Why those who don't follow sports are so taken with him and his outlook?
2: Well, it's not just because he's a broadcaster. He tells such dramatic stories, sincere. He's the most sincere person I've ever interviewed about growing up with a disease that he's managed to take care of. And because of that, he gained prominence by virtue of overcoming it. My parents went through a lot
0: when I was sick and when I was growing up. And their beauty is that it wasn't the center of my universe, whether that leads to me being naive about it when I'm young, maybe, but there was never any idea like, oh, you can't do this, but you can do this, but you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do like I played basketball with my friends growing up. We played football in the backyard. I was a big wrestling fan and my parents were terrified when I would like wrestle with my cousins and you know things like that because they didn't want me to snap. Uh, in half, right? Because I was like, I'm like a hundred pounds now. I was like seven pounds then. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, it was not easy for them, especially because when you when you see your kid growing up in a hospital a lot, uh, that's hard, and you just kind of want to protect it.
2: Yet, still to this day, he mentions walking through airports and people looking at him and trying to treat him differently. And it's still an everyday situation for him. There's an old cliche about, you know, you wear your heart on your sleeve. His heart is his whole body. And that was one of the most dramatic interviews. I was so spellbound by his sincerity um, and the thought process that takes place uh, when you are fighting on a daily basis. He overcame it. Uh, and unfortunately, he's left the White Sox to, to join the Tigers, which is unfortunate for the city of Chicago because he and Steve Stone are a great pair. Then again, he and everybody is a great pair. There isn't an analyst he doesn't work with whom he enhances. So there's a
0: developmental uh, set of research going on about the causes of CP and the underlying reasons for it. But yeah, I I am truly one of the fortunate ones. And I I, I don't mean to say that to say that people who have it worse off symptomatically are not capable of having fulfilling lives. I don't mean that in any way worse off is a value judgment on them. I just mean that I have speech patterns that sound like, quote unquote, normal people. Uh, I have the ability to get around without chronic pain. I have the ability to get around without the use of a wheelchair. I can walk, I can carry my bags, I can do all of those things. So I was pretty fortunate in that way, because I've gotten to know some young people and some older people who use iPads to speak or mm. are nonverbal, and they use their eye gaze technology, right? They, they have this technology with tablets now, where you just stare at a word, and then that word activates. And so there, there are a lot of people who have uh, gravely different versions of CP. And, you know, I I don't know that what I did was terribly honorable in that I just went into radio where I disappeared and was invisible to start out. But I think I needed that sort of catharsis of, hey, there is a place where people can hear me before they
3: see me. One thing you shared on social media when the news of his move from Detroit had hit was this answer to your question about what's next for him. Um, Your discussion was recorded, I believe you can correct me, in spring of this year. And you heard and I heard and the audience can hear this chuckle that Jason has at the question of
2: what's next for him. You're in your late 30s. I would imagine you are living in the moment, or are you? Do you ever think to yourself, what's next? Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: when when you grow up wondering like, if you're going to get the chance, and I, I was confident that I was naive enough to feel like I... Was going to figure it out and somebody would hire me. But I'm always thinking, what's next? Not in job terms, but like, where's my mind going to go? What's the hobby that I'm going to do next? What, like, how can I activate my mind instead of how can I do something that I've done before? And so it's always, where's my mind going to go next? What am I going to see if I can have the chops to do within the context of, I love my job. I mean, I love what I'm doing and I want to do it for a long, long time, but I also have a mind that wants to activate. And so that's that's kind of the push and
3: pull. And one has to wonder, I don't want to make something out of nothing, but it's just interesting to hear this hesitance on his end, even if it wasn't fully intended, That audio is so captivating in retrospect to what we know now.
2: I think he knew then, but I also think that somewhere in the podcast, uh, he might have mentioned that, you know, it it doesn't mean that at age when we did it, I think he was 39, that he was going to be the White Sox broadcaster for the rest of his life. His star is rising and it continues to rise. But yes, I think that that chuckle was indicative, perhaps, of something he already knew. He had some issues with the White Sox, and most notably, the fact that they wanted him to be primary doing all their games. Well, first he was at ESPN, and now he's at Fox. And, you know, he has a schedule, and he has another life, and that is a nationally known broadcaster. So in the end, they couldn't meet. They let him out of his contract. He's in Detroit. That's Detroit's gain and Chicago's loss.
3: When we return, George guides us through conversations with Bob Costas and Dave Wonstadt. Stay tuned. Call from mom.
1: Answer it.
0: Call silenced.
1: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game.
0: You have 47 new voicemails.
1: Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
3: I want to move over to Bob Costas, you know, as long as we're talking about broadcasters. On your show, he's got this recount of calling Jordan's game six in 1998 against Utah. And he makes a good point that not every championship will be remembered in the annals of time, but so many things have to come together and coalesce, right? It's story, it's fate, it's athleticism, it's drive. All of these things kind of make a mixture at the right point in time to give us an image, a legendary performance, an amazing broadcast, something that we carry with us for decades later. And I just thought that was so interesting, the way he he retold that story of that game six and giving credit to his team of, of how to make that image so memorable.
2: You're an announcer, broadcaster, you're a reporter, which is what I like about Pat Hughes, reporting. So you're reporting on history, but you're also knowledgeable of what could be transpiring at that moment. That's what he's saying. He knows that this could be Jordan's last game, that they could be winning their last championship?
4: Not every game, and for that matter, not every World Series, not every NBA championship kind of echoes down the corridors of time. Not everyone. They all mean something to that team and to that team's fan base. But there are a few that you just know are going to be talked about forever. And I think it's part of the play-by-play guy's job to be mindful of that and capture it in some way, whereas it was Doug Collins' job and Isaiah Thomas' job to analyze what was going on in the game itself. So there was no way we would know or could know uh, how incredible that final sequence would be for Michael, making the two free throws, then making a driving layup, then stealing the ball from Karl Malone, bringing it up court himself, no one else touches it, making the winning shot, holding the pose. It was a movie, and you had 10 chances, 10 takes. You couldn't get it any better. It was almost as if he was posing for a statue. He said subsequently the reason he did it was that at age 35, he'd played a lot of grinding minutes all season long, all throughout the playoffs. In that game especially, Scottie Pippen uh, hobbled by a bad back, and his jump shot had come up short a lot in the fourth quarter, and we noted that during the game. And he just wanted to make sure he followed through so that the shot wouldn't come up short. But what it led to was this classic pose. What could be any better than that? On the other hand, the lead is one and the jazz have the ball with 5.2 seconds left. If they score, they force a game seven and that game seven is on their home floor. That could flip the entire script. So I felt like I had to be mindful in that moment of the story that was developing, but I couldn't say it definitively because you didn't know it was going to happen after the timeout. So I said something like, who knows what will unfold in the next several weeks, but that may have been the final shot Michael Jordan will ever take in the NBA. And if that's the last image of Michael Jordan, how magnificent is it? And luckily for me, our great director, Andy Rosenberg, and producer David Neal were right in sync with me. So when I said what I said, they had a beautiful slow motion shot from a different angle of Michael releasing the ball. And just as I said, how magnificent is it? And they get the credit for this. The ball swished through the net in slow motion. And that's the kind of thing that locks a moment in the minds of the viewers.
3: I wanted to talk about Dave Wadstand, too, because (laughs) the story he shares of coming back for his daughter's wedding after coaching in Chicago, I thought was so interesting because we are in the middle of a Bears season where things are chaotic, to say the best. Fans are sour on Iberflus' output. Next to Jim Dooley, who came in to coach after George Hallis, I think next to Dooley, Dave has the hardest, had the hardest Bears coaching job ever because he comes in to succeed Mike Ditka. Yeah, And after he was fired, his first time back to Chicago is for this wedding. You know, it's kind of
5: funny, my. Both my daughters were married downtown Chicago. And when I left the bears and I was at the dolphins and I had not gone back to Chicago in between, basically at all, the kids were coming down to me. I was in Miami. They were coming down here and they were in college. So it was spring break time down here in Florida, Miami. And my oldest daughter got married, and I think I was in my third, fourth year. So it would have been probably five years after I left the Bears. I hadn't been back. And my daughter got married at the Chicago Hilton. And I tell you what, and I really was not sure of the response or the people. And everyone from the guy that was pouring the water at the table to the general manager. And the people on the street, they were unbelievable. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, maybe we didn't win enough football games, but one thing I know I did right: I treated all these people the way that that they should have been treated. And it, it all came. It, it was really that thing of how you reap what you sow, and everything came back to us. I mean, it was, uh, and 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 so that's and then eventually then we got a place up there, and. Uh, you know, we're up there six months a year and I'm doing all these shows and it's my I got six grandkids up there now. So it's uh, it's been fantastic.
2: Dave that's a very popular guy. He was open with the media and he is the ultimate storyteller. Uh, in the book, he tells <laughs> such a funny story about how the Bears were being clandestine in bringing him in for his press conference and putting him up in a hotel. uh, I think it was the Deer Path in under the name of a Bears player from years gone past. Yet everybody knew he was gonna be the Bears coach because it was front page headlines. And it's just the way he tells a story. Some people are great storytellers. Eddie Olchek is a great storyteller. Steve Stone is a great storyteller. There are people who are gifted at telling stories. But even the rest, once you open that microphone and they're talking about their history, they become storytellers as well, which is why I love doing the podcast and which is why I love writing a book.
3: It's got to be wonderful to, you know, you built this career covering sports, you know, being in radio where on air, It's all about the 15 second soundbite, right? And now, you know, with podcasting, you are able to let that person go and get all the stories that they have as as much as they're willing to give you during an hour or a half hour or what have you. Hey, we can just kind of let this conversation flow where it's going to flow rather than being so focused on getting, you know, the perfect clip.
2: Well, I wasn't prepared to do that. But when I was let go by WBBM in July of 2020, I took a couple of weeks off and I said to myself, I'm 66 and a half years old. I'm not done yet. And so I knew nothing about podcasts. I didn't listen to podcasts. I didn't know a thing. So I had to study and I had to talk to probably a couple of dozen people, experts in the business. I watched tutorials, I put together a staff. But I also used my expertise in the radio business to do the interviews. And when I'm editing, I throw in sound bites. If they're talking about an historic moment, That moment is in there. If I can find it, thank goodness for YouTube. It's just wonderful. (laughs) Getting all these great sound bites. So that's part of what I did, albeit in long form. I've always enjoyed interviewing people. And the fact that I had a history with many of these people is kind of why I started the podcast. I knew almost all of these people. Some of them I didn't know. I'll give you an example. Lisa Byington, who is the voice of the Milwaukee Bucks. She's the first ever female a lead play-by-play announcer for an NBA team. She also yeah. does the Chicago Sky. Dave Revson, the uh, lead uh, voice and face of the Big Ten Network, after I did the interview, suggested, Have you ever interviewed Lisa Bynes? I said, Well, no, I haven't. So I emailed her. Not only did she graciously accept, she said, I'm already listening to your podcast. It's like, it blew me away. That was great. So there's a lot of work involved. Because it's studying up on the person that you're going to talk to, kind of mapping out certain kind of questions, and then letting it flow. And then afterwards, there's a lot of editing involved. All those sound bites. Uh, for example, we are airing now and will next week the inspiration for my professional career, along with Jack Brickhouse, Brent Musburger, who sat in the chair at WBBM News Radio when it first began in 1968. But it's when I saw him on TV, I was mesmerized, and I said to myself, I want to be you. Well, I wasn't him, but thanks to him, I fashioned a 50-year career that I hope will continue. This episode of Looped in
3: Chicago was hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jim Hankey, with additional audio provided by George Offman. As a reminder, you can now go to our second episode with George as we further discuss his book and podcast, Tell Me a Story I Don't Know awaiting you in this same podcast feed. WBBM's news director is Craig Schwab and our managing producer of national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan. On social media, please follow WBBM News Radio and WBBM Podcasts and we'll keep you looped in again right here next week.
4: Thanks for listening.